or 28, Matthew chapter 28, and we will be looking at verses 1 to 15, and then next week we will be concluding our three-year-long journey through the gospel of Matthew. We started in March of 2020 going through Matthew, and we will be concluding next week before we move on to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. And if you are able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word this morning, starting in Matthew chapter 28, verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee where they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people. His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. This is the word of the Lord this morning. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So the Apostle Paul, writing to the Corinthian church, declared to them, and by extension to us and to the church as a whole, that which is, as he calls it, things of first importance. Things of first importance. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 4. Those things of first importance are these that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So as you see there, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, meaning his death atoned for, his death paid the penalty for our sin. During those dark hours of our Lord's crucifixion, literally dark as the sun the sun's light failed, God the Father laid on him, according to Isaiah, the iniquity of us all. At the cross, 
Isaiah says again, Jesus poured out his soul to death and was numbered with transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many. At the cross, Christ made many to be accounted righteous as he bore their iniquities. At the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Jesus, as the apostle Peter wrote, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. At the cross, we behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Because sin was for us who believe and still is for those who don't believe in this very moment a damning power, condemning all that it holds in its tyrannical grip condemning them to an eternity of God's just and righteous wrath. Know this, the consequences of sin are infinitely terrible as they demand the furious judgment of God the Father. God hates sin with a perfect hatred, and He will eternally and unrelentingly pour out His retribution against sin Sin upon those who die apart from Christ, who die in their sin without forgiveness that is offered to all by grace through faith in his name. It is the reality that we read right here that causes us to jump, drop radios over all the countries in the world, to send missionaries into all the countries of the world, to appeal to people to go and make disciples. Because this is the only way that a person can be saved. By repentance and faith in Jesus. If you do not believe this, you are not saved. This is of first importance, according to the Apostle Paul. That Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Meaning in his death, the sins of all who believe in his name were laid on him. And he bore in himself the just penalty in your place to purchase you, to win you, to save you, to redeem you, to deliver all who believe from the wages of sin, which is eternal death, and to conduct them, to conduct you, if you believe, into the sublime eternal blessings of life with him forever. We examined these two things a couple of weeks ago as we focused on the death of our Lord Jesus Christ as recorded in Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 to 50. The Apostle Paul continues, however, and says there are two other things of first importance, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures and that He was buried. As we noted last week when we looked at Matthew 27, 51 to 66, Jesus, after he died and after his death had been confirmed by Pontius Pilate, who as Mark wrote in verses 44 and 45 of chapter 15, Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus should have already died and summoning the centurion, he asked whether Jesus was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that Jesus was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. 
Now note Mark's usage of that word corpse to indicate the fact that Jesus Christ's body was indeed lifeless when it was handed over to Joseph of Arimathea. And Joseph took that body, took the corpse of Jesus Christ, wrapped it in a clean linen shroud, laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock, and he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb, and he went away. Jesus was truly dead. And as one who was dead, he was buried. For the Christian, believing this fact that Christ's body was buried is also, according to the Apostle Paul, of first importance. As is belief in the resurrection of Jesus on the third day. As Paul continued summing up the things of first importance, saying again, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. If this text, 1 Corinthians 15, 2 to 4 or 3 to 4, is not highlighted in your Bible, do it right now. You see, the Christian faith rises and falls on this historic event the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ on the third day. Had Jesus not risen from the dead, there would be no church. You and I wouldn't be sitting here today. The resurrection of Jesus is the cornerstone without which our hope in this life and in the next would be nothing more than a lie and all of us would be people to be pitied more than anyone else. And it's this fact that has constantly led throughout the centuries, throughout the generations, people to continually chip away at and try to attack this central cardinal doctrine of the Christian church. Because they know if they can cast doubt on this, the resurrection of Jesus, they can damage the church, or at least attempt to. They'll never actually damage it. The validity of the resurrection has been repeatedly attacked by number and numerous theories and attempts to debunk it. A few of them include women, the women that uh, went to the tomb visited the wrong tomb. Well, if you look at the text, the angels make it clear, right? Come, come and see, this is where he was laying. Some say that he didn't really die on the cross, he just kind of faked it. That's called the swoon theory, right? That he just faked it. And then he appeared to his disciples three days later and said, I'm alive. Now you imagine if it wasn't Jesus' resurrected, glorified body, what that body would have looked like had he, re had he just faked his death. Would it have been a body that would have inspired confidence and faith from the people who saw it? Remember, he was whipped and scourged and beaten and spit upon and all that stuff. It wouldn't have been a very impressive sight no jesus really did die really rose again and he appeared in a glorified body some say it was simon of cyrene who was crucified they just kind of actually forgot that jesus was the one there and simon was the one who went and was crucified that's a prevailing islamic theory but mark tells us that if you want to know the events that happened with Simon of Cyrene, all you need to do is go and ask Alexander and Rufus, his two sons. They would have told you whether it was Jesus or whether it was Simon. All the answers are in the text, as they are for everything, right? There are some who even put theories like Jesus only rose spiritually and then, and then uh, communicated with the disciples telepathically. 
I don't even need to explain that one. And then there were some who say that it was actually a big seance. They kind of sat in a circle and they conjured up his spirit and he appeared to them and gave them his marching orders, gave them their marching orders. And there's a whole bunch more, all futile efforts, all of which are attempts to avoid the cardinal historic truth. And that is... Yes, he is risen. <laughs> the resurrection displays and declares that Jesus really is the Savior of the world. Again, without his being raised from the dead, Jesus would have simply been nothing more than another in a long line of phony messianic pretenders. Had he not been raised on the third day, the disciples would have all gone home and stayed home. And this is what they did after his burial. Peter went back to fishing just days after Jesus, or just a, just a few hours after Jesus died. And it was while he was on his boat, having so quickly returned to his normal life, that Jesus appeared to him after the resurrection. Had Christ not been raised from the dead, the disciples, along with everyone else, would have considered Jesus nothing more than a cursed blasphemer, a wretched liar, condemned by God as being unworthy of remembrance because, as the Word of God states in Galatians 3, which is a quote from Deuteronomy, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And we know that Jesus was hanged on the tree in order to redeem us in order to redeem us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. But the disciples, not knowing that Jesus had been raised, they seem to have already moved on, to have settled back into their own lives, perhaps a little saddened by the time lost, maybe even sensing a little bit of shame at having followed a failed Messiah for three long years. But as we see in our text this morning in verse 6, he is not here. He is risen as he said. And being raised up, Jesus is shown, according to the Apostle Paul in Romans 1, to be the Son of God according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. You hear in our text this morning Matthew's characteristically succinct and concise record of the events on the day of Christ's resurrection, beginning in verse 1. Let us explore Matthew's account of the resurrection, this event of first importance. Now, after the Sabbath, verse 1, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. So you see, very early on Sunday morning, now, this is why the church shifted their day of worship from Saturday, the Sabbath, to the seventh day of the week, to Sunday, the first day of the week. And they called it the Lord's Day. It's because on the first day of the week, the Lord rose from the dead. And gathering on the first day was a way of helping the Christians know the centrality of the resurrection in their worship. Every week we gather on Sunday to celebrate the fact that our Lord Jesus Christ was risen from the dead. And on this particular Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. 
These women were at the cross when Jesus died. They were following him all the way to the cross. And then after Jesus died and Joseph took the body down, these women followed Joseph to the tomb and they watched him put the body in it. And now here they arrive very early in the morning to fix their eyes on the tomb once again, to gaze at it. Mark tells us they came to complete the burial preparations to anoint the body of Jesus, a process that had been cut short by the fact that Jesus died and the Sabbath was about to come, which meant that they couldn't do those anointing rituals until the Sunday morning. And as they approached the stone, or as they approached the tomb, Mark tells us that they were talking to one another and they said, who will roll the stone away? Who will roll the stone away for us from the entrance of the tomb? And as they walked closer and moved closer and closer and closer to the tomb, behold, says Matthew, verse 2. And hopefully you noted as I read the text leading into the message, the repetition of that word, behold and behold and behold. It's a word that speaks to wonder and awe. And behold, there was a great earthquake as the women walked to the tomb. The earth shook at the death of Jesus Christ, and now it shakes again as the angel comes down to announce his resurrection. Earthquakes in this context are God's way of saying, hey, 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 listen up. See what has come to pass. Something amazing has just happened. And the reason for this earthquake is the arrival of the angel. Look at verses 2 and 3. An angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. See that? The angel rolled back the stone. Why? To let Jesus out of the tomb? No. In a glorified body, a stone is no hindrance to leaving the tomb. The angel rolled back the stone in order to invite these faithful women into the tomb to see the truth that he is announcing. He is not here. He is risen. Come and see the place where he lay. And the appearance of these angels was so stunning and at the same time so terrifying that verse 4 tells us, for fear of him, for fear of the angel, the guards, they trembled and they became like dead men. See, the guards, just like the earth, the guards, they also shook. The Greek word here is the same root. The earth quaked and so did the soldiers. They shuddered and they quaked in fear at the sight of this angel sitting on top of the stone. And gripped with alarm and panic, they fell down. And they fell down and were paralyzed, literally paralyzed with fear. Their bodies were motionless like those of dead men. And if you look, the angel doesn't even say anything to them. It's not even recorded that he looked at them. They fall down and it's like, ladies just ignoring them as they're all laying on the ground. And he says to them in verse 5, the ladies, the women, don't be afraid. 
Don't be anxious. Don't be fearful. Don't be scared. Why? I have some joyful news. I have some amazing news to announce to you. I know, verse 5, I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. Notice that phrase, Jesus who was crucified. For anyone who hasn't been raised from the dead, such a term would be one of shame and mockery and humiliation. But for Jesus, who is the firstborn from the dead, the New Testament proudly over and over and over again declares him to be our crucified Messiah. Because the apostles and all the children of Christ from that day to this know that far from being a shameful title, this title is one of honor and one of dignity. It is a title that announces him to be the savior of everyone who believes. And the apostle Paul makes a point of broadcasting this centerpiece of his apostolic preaching. In 1 Corinthians 1, he wrote, We preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. And again, in chapter 2 of the same letter, Paul writes, I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. These faithful women came looking for Jesus who was crucified. And as the guards lay motionless on the crowns, the angels trumpeted to these women the greatest news in creation's entire history. You're watching news on TV looking for some good news? Forget it. It's not there. Jeremy, you were right. There's no good news on TV. The good news is here in Matthew chapter 28. He is risen. He is risen indeed. That's the good news. That is the good news that drowns out all other news in this world. The news that ought to block out all of the crud that is going on in the, on the planet we live in. As we walk, we're not thinking about who's doing this in that country and who's doing that over there and who's killing who and who's robbing who. We're thinking, he's risen. He's risen indeed. So guess what? My eternal future is secure. Amen, amen, amen. He's not in the tomb. He's been raised from the dead. And that phrase, he, is, he has risen, is what we call, in, it's in the divine passive, meaning God has raised Jesus up from the dead. And this resurrection of our Lord is significant in that, as we've already said, it confirms the acceptability of Christ's sacrificial offering of himself in our place. It validates and it authenticates Jesus Christ as Messiah. It reveals him to be, beyond any shadow of a doubt, exactly who he said he is. He is the one by and in whom sins are forgiven and eternal life is laid hold of by grace through faith in his name. His being raised from the dead, however, not only reveals him to be who he said he was, but it also guarantees for you who believe and are sitting here this morning your own future bodily resurrection as well. Jesus Christ is the first fruits. 
And as the first fruits, you look to him and you say, he, because he was raised, I know I will be too, to enjoy him eternally in the eternal kingdom. Jesus said it, right? I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who believes in me shall never die. And again in John 14, 19, Jesus said this to his disciples, because I live, you also will live. And as the Apostle Paul wrote, for by, as by a man came death, by a man, Jesus Christ, has come also the resurrection of the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the guarantee of mine and yours, provided you believe, yours own future resurrection to eternal joy-filled life in the glorious and everlasting mansions that have been prepared for us by Jesus Christ himself. Believer in Jesus this morning, this is your certain future. This is what you have to look forward to as you sit here now, as you leave later, as you sit in your houses, as you go to work, as you drive in your cars, as you buy the exceedingly expensive stuff in the supermarket. This is your future. This will be after this uncertain, pain-filled, anxiety-riddled life here on earth has concluded what awaits you and I after we have breathed our last here after our souls have gone to be with the Lord, looking forward to the day of our future bodily resurrection and final entrance into the eternal kingdom. This is of such surpassing greatness and wonder that the Apostle Paul could write this, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So he is not here, for he has risen, as he said. This Jesus to whom we have committed our souls truly is the glorious, praiseworthy Son of God who gave his life as a ransom for many and God raised him from the dead and in so doing confirmed his word, confirmed his promises to all who believe and he has secured eternal joy-filled future with himself for you, believer. And the angel reminds the women as he stand, sits on the, on the, on the stone, that this, this news shouldn't surprise them. That Jesus isn't in the tomb. That he is risen. Because, look at that little phrase at the end, he is not here, he has risen. And the last little bit, as he had said. Jesus repeatedly reiterated and announced to different groups that this is going to happen. He did it a little more ambiguously with the scribes when he said in chapter 12, verse 40, speaking to them, just as Jonah was in, was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. To the disciples, he said it at least four times that we can see recorded. In chapter 16, 21 of Matthew, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. 17, chapter 17, verses 23 and 24, Jesus said, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. 
And again, in chapter 20, verses 18 and 19, Jesus said to the disciples, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. And finally... Just before Jesus went out to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night when he was betrayed, he told the disciples in chapter 26, verse 32 of Matthew's Gospel, After I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. What Jesus said would happen has indeed happened. He is not here. He has risen. As he had said, Come, said the angel, see the place where he lay. John tells us that the bandages had been folded up, indicating that the tomb hadn't been pillaged, it hadn't been robbed, there was no hasty anything happening in there, everything occurred in order, and that means that whatever happened in that tomb during those days was not rushed, it was not hurried, it was was not the byproduct of some hasty human plan. This was the long-standing prophesied determined plan of God come to pass. Come, see where he lay. Then verse 7, Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. Go, tell the eleven. Run speedily, run promptly. Go without delay. This is news that you can't tell anyone fast enough. Announce the glad tidings to the disciples. He's risen from the dead. You'll see him in Galilee. And the the, the women, faithful as they are, verse 8, so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and they ran to tell his disciples. These women were the very first evangelists. And if the writers of the Gospels were not as concerned about accuracy and truthfulness as they are, about accurate and truthful accounts of what actually happened, this part would have been edited out of the resurrection report. Because in these days, women were not considered reliable witnesses in Jerusalem, Israel, and Rome. In fact, their testimonies were oftentimes dismissed as lacking any solid credibility because in these days, women were thought to be the the speakers of idle tales and irrational words. And yet, here in the gospel account, in the thick of that culture the angel first sends the women with the eyewitness report to declare and to announce the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And these women ran to tell the disciples, Jesus is risen. The other gospel accounts actually record that the disciples, all of them, except for Peter and John, we were told what they thought when the women reached them and told them the account. Luke 24, 11, these words seemed to them an idle tale. And they did not believe them because the message came from these women, except for Peter and John who rose up and ran to the tomb. Could it be? Could it be? And not only were these women the first evangelists tasked with spreading the news of the resurrection, but they were also, according to Matthew, the first to see the resurrected Jesus. As they ran to tell the disciples, we see in verse 9, 
And behold, Jesus met them. That's the women. As they're running to tell the disciples, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. He used this common greeting that means something along the lines of, Good morning, I am so glad to see you. And as Jesus said this, the women stopped running. They came up to him and they took hold of his feet and they worshipped him. They were overjoyed to see the one that they loved so deeply now alive. And they took hold of his feet. That word means they seized his feet and held on to them. They gripped his feet. A sign, again, a sign that the resurrection of Jesus is a physical bodily resurrection. But they took hold of his physical feet, gripping them with such a tightness as if to say, I'm never letting you go again. And they worshipped him. And notice Jesus doesn't rebuke them for worshipping him. He doesn't tell them, stop, stop worshipping me. Why? Because Jesus truly is God come to us in the flesh. And the women in wonder and in awe, adore him as such. And it's important to hear this, that Jesus was raised up bodily because the resurrection being of first importance means we have to understand the resurrection correctly. Jesus was not raised as some untouchable, ethereal, celestial, yet visible spirit. No, he was raised up bodily as we will be at the end of the age. While he didn't, he told them don't don't. Um, while he didn't tell them not to worship him, he did say, according to John, to the women, "Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father." And why did he say that? Because, as he had said earlier to the disciples, it is to your advantage that I go away, because if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you, meaning the Holy Spirit. But if I do go away, I will send him to you. So the physical presence of Jesus during this age gives way as he ascends to the presence of the Holy Spirit in and among the church across the world. And this Spirit now lives in us, sanctifying us, convicting us, empowering us, and gifting us. Listen, had Jesus not ascended to the Father and sent the Holy Spirit, none of us would turn to him in faith, in true faith. The Spirit needs to do that by turning us. Without the Spirit leading men to write, we wouldn't have the New Testament. Without the Spirit, we wouldn't possess the power to be Christ's witnesses. You remember, right? He told the disciples, don't go out yet. Go to Jerusalem and wait until the power comes down to you. And then, when you receive power, you will be my witnesses. The ascension of Jesus and the sending of the Spirit is for us, the church, a tremendous advantage in this age as we await his return and rule on the earth. As the women worshipped Jesus, he said to them in verse 10, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Do you see here the victory of Christ's grace and mercy to these disciples? These same 11 men had scattered when it became clear that Jesus would not lead them in a violent uprising and take the seat of earthly power in Jerusalem and throw off Roman oppression. 
These men could at that moment accept a number of things, but not Christ's command in 2652 to put their swords away. They had been waiting to fight. They had been waiting for this moment. Peter took out his sword and he tried to kill Malchus. They were waiting for Jesus to signal the beginning of the revolt. And what better time than this? They had the sword in hand, were ready to swing it, were ready to kill for Jesus. When Jesus said to them, no, sheathe your sword, because if you live by the sword, you will die by the sword. In essence, telling them, my kingdom will be established and inherited by means other than these. This was a bridge too far for the disciples. They had signed up for seats of honor by Messiah's side, not suffering and the possibility of their own death as Messiah is carried away and rejected by the religious leaders in Israel and crucified by the Romans they hope to throw off. And so that's, so all the disciples left him and fled, 2658. Peter three times denied any connection to or knowledge of Jesus during the midnight trial by the religious council on into the night. John sat in the court and listened to the proceedings without saying anything, without standing up and saying, that's false. And all the disciples except for John were nowhere to be found as Jesus was fastened to and nailed to the cross. And yet after the resurrection, Jesus looks at the women and says, Go tell my brothers. Is that phrase, my brothers? Go and tell my family. Go and tell my closest relations on earth. Go and tell those men I love to go to Galilee because I'm going to meet them there. The content of Jesus' message to the disciples is we will be looking at next week as we conclude our study of Matthew. But before we get there, Matthew provides insight into what happens also with the guards and the angels, or the guards who saw the angel and heard the announcement. So the, the narrative of the women now concludes, and in verse 11, we move to a separate uh, occasion. And as we look at this occasion, I want you to think to yourself, if you've ever thought to your own self, if unbelievers out in the world just had the proof that they were looking for, they, they would turn to Jesus. If I just knew how to answer all of their questions and to provide them the answers to all of their questions, surely they would turn to Jesus in faith. If, if I just knew more things, I could totally win more souls to Jesus. And while we should strive to be comfortable in the arenas of Christian history, apologetics, scripture, and philosophical arguments for faith in Christ, there is a reason the Apostle Paul, for the most part, stuck to the plain message of the gospel. There is a reason why when he said to the Corinthian, there's a reason why he said to the Corinthian church, I didn't come to you proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. And why is that? Because in the wisdom of God, according to Paul, it has pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Now listen to this. Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, 
a stumbling block to Jews, folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, I want you to just hear that little phrase again. Jews demand signs. Jews demand signs. The question is then, if they were to receive those signs, would they believe in this generation? It's the same similar situation we find ourselves in because the world that we live in, the unbelieving world, will make all sorts of demands upon you as a believer to prove what you believe. They'll make all sorts of intellectual demands. They'll, make, they'll say, we want signs and we want proof. Do you really think that if they receive the demands and the proofs that they would actually believe? Perhaps. Perhaps they would. But as we see in Matthew's record, there are many who, even when the reports come to them from credible eyewitnesses, it makes no difference. They just will not believe. And so for this reason, the end New Testament witness is to us who believe, preach Christ. Preach Him crucified. Preach Him buried. Preach Him resurrected on the third day for the forgiveness of sins. If you do that... The Holy Spirit will work through it. Don't think you need to know every philosophical argument. If you know these three things, Christ was crucified, that he was buried, he rose again from the third day, and if you believe in his name, you will be saved. That's all you need. Go out with that. Because look what happened as the women were on their way to tell the disciples that Jesus had risen. Look at verse 11. While they, the women, were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. So some of the guard, meaning a portion of this 16-soldier regiment that had been tasked with securing the tomb, they become also unintentional witnesses of the resurrection. And they went and they told the chief priest, it says, all that they had seen. They told the priests, and there was an angel and the stone was rolled away, and it was sitting on top of the stone. And they said to these women, he's not here, he's risen, come and see. And I couldn't do anything, because I was paralyzed with fear. They told the priests about the folded linen cloths, and the empty, the absence of the body, and the tomb being empty. Now you remember, these, these Roman soldiers aren't men who are prone to lying, they're like, hey, this stuff happened. And if you remember, when Jesus was on the cross, these are the same religious leaders who said to him in chapter 27, verse 40, let him come down from the cross and we'll believe in him. Show us some sort of sign and we'll believe in you. Well, an even more spectacular sign has occurred. A more wonderful, more miraculous sign has occurred. Coming down from the cross, that's, that's, a, that's a nothing sign. What has happened is, He's risen from the dead. And this is reported to them. Again, not by some unreliable source, but by the very Roman soldiers who have everything to lose by actually telling them that information. The very soldiers who witnessed the events in real time. And yet, is this enough for those chief priests? Do they even bother to go out and check for themselves? No. It didn't inspire or elicit repentance and faith in these evil men. They didn't even offer a rebuttal to the fact of the resurrection. 
They believed the word that had been brought to them by the soldiers. The demand for a sign had been met, and yet even so, with the incontrovertible evidence and the undeniable truth staring them in the face, like the demons who believed the truth without believing in the truth, they sought to deceive. See, the demons know the truth and they believe, and yet they make it their aim and goal to deceive the world to blind the eyes, to keep the world from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And how did this evil generation of chief priests do this? How did they labor to blind eyes to Jesus? How did they prove themselves to be in league with Satan? Matthew continues in verse 12. When they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel... So the chief priests assemble and the religious leaders in Israel assemble after hearing the report of the soldiers and they concoct and they agree upon, here's our plan of action. Because if the news of this resurrection gets out, if the news that there was an angel sitting on the stone gets out, people might believe. We can't have that because if they believe in him, that means they won't like us as much. And the byproduct of the council was this. So let's pay off the soldiers... Let's pay them to remain silent about the truth, to stay silent about what actually happened, and also, in place of the silence about what actually happened, to spread a lie instead. As we read, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. The word sufficient here speaks to a considerable sum. They gave a hefty amount to the soldiers to incite them to lie. And after giving them the money, they said in verse 13, tell people, Tell, his, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while they were asleep. Now, do you see the foolishness of this plan? These are the high and lofty minds in Israel, the teachers of Israel, and they are all putting their heads together to brainstorm a plan to answer this demand or this, re- this resurrection narrative to try and cover it up. This is the best they could come up with. Tell the people that while you were sleeping, the disciples came and stole his body away. Again, while you were sleeping. A few questions that uh, I might ask if they ran to me. Hey, guess what? Guess what? They come, up, they come up to me and they're like, guess what? The disciples came by night and they stole the guy's body away while I was asleep. So if you were asleep, how could you know that it was the disciples? How could you know what happened if you're asleep? How could you know the body was stolen? Maybe an eagle came and grabbed it and flew off with it. What do you know? You were asleep. And again, I might ask, so there were 16 of you there, right? A guard is 16 soldiers. There were 16 of you there, right? So you're asking me to believe that all 16 soldiers in the guard, a guard commissioned by the Roman governor, highly trained in the art of security and warfare, that all of you, all of you slumbered so heavily that a group of untrained, uneducated fishermen who didn't even believe that there was going to be a resurrection in the first place, hastily came by night. At the moment when you were all asleep, they rolled away a humongous stone, entered the tomb, and unwrapped all the linen cloths from the body, and then folded them up all nicely, absconded with the body, and none of you noticed? None of you 16 men noticed? It's hard to believe in, right? And to increase the crimes of the religious leaders here, they even sweeten the pot for the guards by saying to them, not only will we give you this large bribe, but if Pilate hears about you falling asleep, we'll make sure to take care of that for you too. 
right? Verse 14, if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and, and keep you out of trouble. So listen, this generation of leaders in Israel, they knew, they knew that Jesus had risen from the dead. They knew it. And they still paid to promote a lie. And they still defended these Roman soldiers to Pilate. They promoted a lie that sadly still blinds the eyes of their descendants to this very day. And all for the sake of their own selfish ambition and prestige, these men ruined the souls of generations. Do you see the depths of human depravity here? For the sake of their own selfish prestige, they ruined their nation. See how they could know the truth that Jesus is indeed the King of the Jews, the Son of God, the way, the truth, and the life come to them from God. And they knew that Jesus had come to them from God really early. Nicodemus said it way back in John 3, 2. We know that you have come from God, for no one could do the things that you do unless he did. He is the one promised by the prophets. He is the Davidic king who would lead them to national peace and prosperity upon their repentance. He had come, but instead of pointing people to him, these religious leaders worked and bribed and took counsel and lied in their efforts to point the nation away from him. The world and the flesh and the devil still do the very same thing to each and every one of us. Again, Jeremy, you said it. When I wanted to know more about Jesus, everything conspired against me to turn me away from it. The world and the flesh and the devil still do the same thing. They work to accomplish this goal on an international scale. And the same is also true of any today who claim to serve and to speak for Jesus and po but point people to sources of authority other than Christ and other than his word. Those who permit and promote wicked sins that damn the soul rather than pointing people to the Savior who delivers it. Always remember that humanity, unsaved humanity, is far more depraved and, far of, and capable of such terrible and dastardly deeds as this. But we who believe, in closing, we who believe and know this most excellent truth, we believe and know this most excellent truth, while the world might lie, we know he is risen. He is risen indeed. And armed with the truth of a crucified Savior who died, was buried, and raised up on the third day. As we'll see next week, we are to go into all the world and make disciples by joyfully pointing them to the risen Savior, Jesus. Telling them the good news. Believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. The risen Lord Jesus there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So my fellow believer, rejoice. He's not in the tomb, for he is risen, as he said. Lord, we thank you and we praise you this morning. We praise you for baptisms. We praise you that somebody, your Holy Spirit, invaded a soul and brought them to the place, brought Jeremy to the place where he said, yes, you have risen, Lord. I believe in you, I trust in you. I thank you that you've done that for almost all of us in this auditorium, in this sanctuary, that you, your Holy Spirit, has brought us to the place where we say, 
Yes, my crucified Lord who was buried and who was risen on the third day. And I pray that as we live in and and think about this truth this week, that it would be a foundation for hope and confidence and joy as we live our lives. As all the things around us conspire to turn our eyes away from Jesus, may we keep them fixed on him. May we find our joy in him. And if people aren't saved this morning, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be pounding at their souls to say, find your forgiveness in him. We ask all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.